you have your Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab it. And turn with me to Genesis chapter 36. That's where we're going to be working this morning. Uh, we're picking it up there in Genesis chapter 36. This is one of the longest chapters uh, in the entire book of Genesis. And it's one of those chapters that, I mean, if you've ever done a Bible reading plan, you get to like the very end of January and you hit about Genesis 36 and you think, I'm not sure I'm going to keep doing this. I mean, it's just, this is a difficult chapter. One of those you're tempted to skip during your morning devotions. But as we look at it here this morning, uh, and we're not going to hit every verse in there, but we do need to approach it just like we would approach any other uh, passage in the Bible. We want to approach it as the Word of God to us, that He gave to us for a reason, that God gave it to us for a purpose. And so if you're willing and able, I'd ask you to stand with me now as we look together at God's Word to us in Genesis chapter 36. Let's come to this chapter with the expectation that we are hearing from the creator and the sustainer of all things. This is Genesis chapter 36, starting in verse 1. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Adah, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Ohalibamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basemoth, Israel's daughter, sorry, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth, and Adah bore Esau Eliphaz. Basemoth bore Ruel, and Oholibamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be here this morning. I want to, it feels a little subdued here today. And I don't know if that's just the, the sort of overwhelming nature of our time. I don't know if it's just exhaustion. I don't know if it's fatigue. I don't know if it's just indifference, Lord. But whatever it is here this morning, I pray that you would shake us out of that as you speak your word to us. I pray that you would rattle us a little bit here this morning, maybe a lot here this morning. And I pray that you would help us to hear from you now, that you would speak. It's been prayed, it's been prayed already this morning, but Lord, would you give us ears to hear you? Would you give us eyes to see you? Would you open up our hearts and awaken our souls that we might know you this morning, and that we would not be satisfied with anything else? And I pray that you would do that. I pray that by your spirit, you would come into this place right now and fill our hearts with your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, back in 1990, which is, seems like a long time ago now, a group of geneticists launched what was called the Human Genome Project. I don't know if you've ever 
heard of this thing. It was led by, primarily led by a guy named Francis Collins. And the project sought to answer what they called the riddle of human DNA. That was their, so they are way smarter than me, all right? They are trying to unravel DNA to bring understanding to the genetic makeup of the human species. It was this groundbreaking study, and Collins, who, who, is a, who is a professing believer, has said that the Human Genome Project gave us the letters of the DNA code that we all share, that every single one of us shares. It gave us the genetic evidence for the truth that as you look around this room, if you see anything other than another human being, you're not seeing it right. And so on the temporal plane, right, it helped lead to massive developments in the fields of genetics, in the fields of medicine, and on the transcendent plane, sort of that next level of understanding, it helped to certify that human beings, regardless of the color of their skin or the shape of their bodies or the potential of their aptitude, it showed that we all share the same basic cellular makeup and has helped to establish on the physical plane what philosophers and theologians have long understood on the spiritual plane that our species all share far more than we might imagine. And it's a reminder that, our, that out of that common ground, that all of us sharing these things, uh, all people, regardless of the nurture side, regardless of the upbringing, regardless of where you live, but out of that side, by nature, as we look at our lives, we all look at them through the filters of how it ought to be, how it is, how it can be, and how it will be. Some have called this the cosmic code. If you ever went through a campus crusade for Christ, they would call this the cosmic code. And the worldview of the Bible, the worldview of Christianity, what we believe here addresses each of those four big questions through the lenses of what we call creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The Bible answers those big questions of how did it all start? And what went wrong? Who's going to fix it? And how does it all end? And we've been confronted with these in the book of Genesis. If you've been tracking with us since the beginning of Genesis, we've talked about this quite a bit. We've seen this play out in our history from the very beginning because Genesis gives us the answers to these questions. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us how it all started, right? That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and God called it good and there was this holy rhythm and there was this holy pattern there in the garden, what the Hebrews would have called shalom. There was peace and there was unity. There was a harmony to it. And in Genesis 3, we get the answer to what went wrong as Adam and Eve broke their covenant with God and plunged the earth into the misery and brokenness of sin. Okay, that harmony was broken like a middle school kid on a trumpet just ruined the whole thing okay and there was and there, and there where there had been peace right where there had been harmony where there had been goodness now there was violence and all our relationships have felt that sting every single one of them but in that same chapter Genesis 3 we see that God doesn't just come and burn the whole thing down and start over but he actually comes and he makes a promise that he is going to send what he called the seed of the woman the offspring of the woman, that holy seed, and that holy seed is going to come, and it's going to crush the head of the deceptive serpent. And we've said all along that what we're seeing in Genesis is a 
is a perfect redemptive line that is pointing straight to Jesus Christ. That's what it's pointing to. He's the divine answer to the question of who's going to fix it. And we've seen the faithfulness of God in providing for his often faithless people, right? We've seen it with Noah, and we've seen it with Abraham. We've seen it in these big stories, like the stories that you've heard your whole life. We saw it with Noah and the ark, Abraham and his people. We've seen it with Isaac and Jacob. We've walked with them in the mess of life, even as we walk together in the mess of life today. And the Bible is honest about that. Here's the thing. The Bible doesn't pretend like, like everything's perfect, right? That's one of the things that makes it so relevant. It doesn't paint the picture of the world as some sort of like Disney Channel mythological utopia, but it recognizes and understands the world as being fractured and torn and volatile and depressing. And that's why we need the Bible today. That's why, the, I don't know if you know this, but back in, uh, what's the year, 15. 36, a guy named William Tyndall, I don't know if you're familiar with that name, but William Tyndall is sort of credited as being the father of the English Reformation. So 15, about 480 some odd years ago, I'm terrible at math, 480 some odd, 84 maybe, I think, 484 years, everybody's like, there's math people who are like, yeah, I think you're right. Um, 484 years ago, a guy named William Tyndall was arrested, well, he was hunted, he was arrested, he was tried. He was defrocked, meaning they ripped his credentials from him. They held him in jail for 18 months in a prison that was dark and wet, and then they paraded him out into a public square, and they tied him to a stump of a tree in the middle of everyone, and they choked him out to the point where he died, and then they burnt and exploded his body for the crime of, you ready to know what this crime was? Translating the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into English. You and I go to Lifeway or Amazon and we buy it and we hide it. This man was choked out, burned, and exploded at the stake for the crime of translating the Bible into the English tongue. And we wonder, why would he do such a thing? And I'll be honest, this is why this made me, I get to Genesis 36 and I wonder, is this what William Tyndall died for? Because Genesis 36 is a long, long list of names. It's a bunch of people we don't know. It's a bunch of people we've never heard of. It's a bunch of people our pastor cannot pronounce. And we wonder why it's here. Why did God give us this passage in his word? And then you remember, if you're like me, it takes you longer to remember than you want to admit, but you remember that last question. You remember that last question of how does it all end? And Genesis 36 cries out for something better than what is. Look back at verse 1 with me. We read there, this is what it says. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. And so we'll stop there. What we know right now is we're not talking about Jacob this week, right? We aren't talking about the chosen line of God. We're talking about Esau. And this chapter, Genesis 36, goes to great effort, great lengths to make it known that Esau is Edom. Because if you read your Bible, Edom is going to continue to come up throughout the entire Old Testament history. It says here in verse 1, it says that uh, it says it in verse 8. It says it over in verse 19. Three different times it makes it clear that Esau is Edom. So Genesis 36 is committed to us understanding that Esau the man multiplied into Edom the people. 
It goes to great lengths to make it known that not only did Esau become a different people, but he also became a different nation, and that different nation moved into a different land. And you see, Jacob is in Canaan. He's in the promised land. Esau is in Seir. So if nothing else, here's what I want you to know. Genesis 36, Genesis 36 understands our world of division. And that's critical for us today, because if you go out and survey people, and they're doing this Literally every week, there's another survey. Every day, there's another one saying the exact same thing. It's that regardless of where you are in the world, regardless of the number of, uh, of sources of anxiety in the hearts of people, the number one problem that people claim is the problem of division among humans. It's division. We divide over ideas. We divide over preferences. We divide over the color of our skin. We divide over ethnicity and geography. We divide over responses to viruses. And and we divide over sports teams. We divide over car brands. I had somebody tell me the other day, I'm a Ford guy. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. I I was like, oh, okay, you do race cars. Anyway, we divide over churches. We divide over churches and styles of music. We divide over our abundance. We see it here with Esau and Jacob, right? Babies are born, flocks increase. These are all good things. And verse 7, what does it tell us? Their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. But the division doesn't stop there. Even within Esau's family, right? Within the people of Edom, we see an increase in division as the chapter goes on. Even as they continue to this intuitively, but different chiefs have different tribes, right? Different chiefs have different tribes, and different tribes have different traditions and different practices. They have different structures of handling the realities of life in the land. And then verses 20 through 30, here's the next section shows us the different leaders of people who were in the land but weren't part of the family. It shows us the neighbors. That's who 20 verses 30 is. It's the neighbors. It shows us the people who live right next door, but they aren't really like us. And in this case, they were sort of like in-laws, okay? They were married into the family, but not really welcomed into the family, they're sort of like, they're like, they're like Ben Stiller and meet the parents, right? They're, they're like, they're near the circle, but they're not part of the, the, of the circle of trust. You know what I mean? And then we see the kings of the people. Here's how it continues to go as they continue to develop. in that last section there in verses 40 through 43, here's what it says. It says that the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names. That's, that's how it describes them. The chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names. Names And so in great detail, we see this picture of the division of humanity in both sort of the micro and macro level. We see it in the immediate family of Esau, and we see it as in Edom as a developing nation. And then it just sort of ends. In fact, if you go and read it, it just sort of ends. You get Genesis 36, and you read through it, and it just sort of ends. In fact, the truth is that this passage really ends with verse 1 of chapter 37 as we, re- as we return back to Jacob's story. And he's living in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. So it begins with Esau living the land of Canaan, and it ends with Jacob staying in the land of Canaan. This is where it leaves us. Brothers are divided, nations are divided, tribes are divided, peoples are divided, languages are divided, and we, if you're anything like me, you feel this today. We feel this division today that Genesis 36 paints for us. 
We're divided. One and two tells us God started it. We know what went wrong. Essentially, we did. We're what went wrong. We broke it. People broke it. People went wrong. Famous director Martin Scorsese has said, deep down, you want to think that people are really good, but the, but the reality outweighs that. And if you've ever watched any of his movies, you know that to be true. You walk out of it just completely numb with nobody to pull for. Everybody ends up being bad. And so in that way, his movies are sort of a commentary on the depravity of man, often leaving you with nobody to cheer for. And so God sent his son. Here's what we know. God sent his son, an outsider, born to those who were on the inside in order to redeem them, in order to redeem you and I, to restore us, in order to bring us both grace and forgiveness, in order to bring light into the darkness and to fix the brokenness by, by taking our sin on himself and dying on the cross to atone for, for all of it. And so we look now as Christians today, with eyes not just set on what is, but we look intently for what will be. And in Christ, we recognize that there is, there's only one solution to the fractures of our, of our lives, one solution to the brokenness, one solution to the division. You see, when we understand the gospel, we understand our, our own helplessness to bring about true reconciliation with God. That's the heart of the gospel message. We can't make it happen. We can't force it to happen. When we understand the gospel, we understand grace and mercy, the, the grace and mercy that we've been shown as helpless sinners. We recognize our complete and utter dependency on God. And the result of that, really the only reasonable result of that, can only be an attitude of humble gratitude. That though we were lost, we have been found. It's humble gratitude because we've been given something that we could not otherwise have attained on our own. That, that grace is what would motivate someone like William Tyndall, right? That grace is what would motivate the great voices of Christian history, the countless legions of martyrs who knew and held to the truth of Romans 8.38, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So I want to ask, you know, what do you think the cure is for all the division around us? Some people think you can legislate it. They do. They can vote it into office. In fact, if you turn on your TV this afternoon, somebody's going to tell you that if you vote for them, they will make everything better. I don't know why that's funny to me. I feel like some people actually watch it and believe it. Maybe that's, it's just depressing more than anything. What's the cure for the division around us? We know it's not a political party. We know it's not a better education system. We, we know the cure isn't in a policy and it's not in a program and it's not in a principle. But for us as believers, you and I have been given the answer. And we know that the cure for this is a person. That's why Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, which by the way, the church in Ephesus was a real mixed bag. All right, they were far more diverse than we are. It was, it was a diverse church, all right? And, and he reminded them, and, and he reminds us, here's what he said, to remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by the way, that was a weird nickname, okay? Just going to say that. 
The church in the Bible has weird nicknames for people who are different. They're the uncircumcision. It's like, we don't want to talk about that ever. Why would we use that as a nickname? But that's what he called them. You were Gentiles in the flesh called, and it's in quotes in your Bible, by the way, the circumcision by what is called the circumcision. So now they're claiming that as pride, which seems real weird too. I mean, you had to be intimately known by people back in the day, okay? By what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Here's verse 13, though. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of flesh, of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create. Here, don't miss this. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You want to see the walls of division around you crumble? Be careful what flag you wave. You want to see the walls of division crumble? Wave the banner of Christ. You want to see the wounds of division healed? Point people to the love of Christ. You want to see friends and neighbors come into the family of faith? Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to one another. Be filled with the Spirit of God instead of the Spirit of separation. Demonstrate the grace and the mercy that you have been shown in Christ. You see, we have the answer to that last question. You and I have been given the answer to one of the greatest questions of humanity. We have the answer to how it all ends. And it's interesting if you listen to it. I'm going to read it in just a second. If you listen to it, how the primary focus is on dividing walls being torn down. How this picture of the end is one of unity. As Genesis 36 points us into the darkness of human division, God has the last word. God has the answer, and in his plan and providence, he has brought us here to share in it today. And we find it in Revelation chapter 7. In fact, if you read the book of Revelation, if you want to turn there, you can. Revelation chapter 7, just go to the back, look for Bible. That's where you'll find it. Read the book of Revelation, you'll find this continuing fracture in humanity. And even in the various churches, you see this division within the churches. And here's what John tells us in this prophetic vision of what will be. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Isn't it interesting that at the end, when we see how everything is going to be, when we see how all things are going to come to be renewed, that the way it describes it is a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. We see this reversal 
of Genesis 36. The great hope of the Bible is not that you're going to be right, but that you will be reconciled. And that by his grace, you'll be reconciled to God with him. That's why the angels are singing amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. The angels even understand how divided we are. They know it took the power of God to make that right. Can you see this picture today? I mean, can you? Can you imagine such a place where there was a, an unnumbered multitude gathered together, all singing in the same voice, all, all standing together and praising God together? Do you see that picture? Of something greater, something better, something brighter, something holy and something beautiful. You see, this is the story that you and I are in right now, even today. Even with our fears about masks, even with all the concerns about November and what's going to happen with an election, even with all the other stuff going on, this is the story that you and I are caught up in. This is the picture that we have been given, the picture that we, you and I, can offer the world. You want to see healing and renewal? Maybe you don't, and I hope you do. If you want to see healing and renewal, if you want to see the world changed into what you know in your heart it should be. You need to give them Jesus. You need to give them Christ. You need to give them the hope. Genesis 36 gives us division. The gospel gives us unity. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you That you do have something better for us. It's something more beautiful, something brighter, something cleaner, something purer. That our hope is not in the temporal here on earth. It's not in, it's not in who gets the number of votes. It's not, in, it's not in who's right about COVID. It's not in any of that. It's in our Savior. And so, Father, as we, as we close out here today, we recognize that we've, we're going to spend about an hour together here this morning. And if this is all there is to our walk with you, Lord, would you put it in our hearts to awaken us to something more? That if this is all we have on a given week, then we don't have enough. So would you stir in us a hunger and a thirst for you. A hunger and a thirst for your righteousness. Help us to seek first your kingdom rather than our own. Help us to seek first your kingdom rather than our country. Help us to seek first your kingdom rather than our comfort and our preferences and our security. Help us to seek first your kingdom above all. Thank you, Lord, that we can be here again. Be with us as we go. Help us to not be so complacent. Help us to not be so subdued. Help us to both live and share your gospel. I pray that in Jesus' name.